You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Recently, some of Brendan's friends made a road trip from Nebraska to sit down with us and ask a bunch of questions about leadership anxiety. Four guys came out, and we put two of them on microphones, and they asked anything they wanted. These guys all serve in youth ministry and had listened to some episodes but wanted to dig deeper. We covered a lot of ground, and I think hearing their questions might help others who are wanting to go deeper with this material as well. So here we go. The beginning of the podcast, you started talking about kind of your experience in chaplaincy and all that stuff. Um, and now you're here today. What were some of the big steps between you becoming aware of anxiety being a part of the soup that is leadership and and where you're at today? And and by that, I'm, I'm looking for almost like defining moments in that journey and what that looked like for you. Yeah, so I came out of Bible college straight into chaplaincy and... I would say my Bible college experience was really good. I, the professors, the culture, I loved it. But it didn't, um, and, and it, maybe it was my own maturity, it didn't teach me how to be a human and a pastor. It taught me how to be a pastor. So I get to chaplaincy, and they're starting to show that if I'm not in touch with my humanity, I'm useless as a clergy. And I, so I fought that for probably three months of the chaplaincy. I thought these people were crazy. They're bringing up stuff that's none of their business, like my shadow side. They're asking me inappropriate questions like, uh, were you afraid? <laughs> like, no, I'm not afraid. I'm a pastor. You know, it was that kind of stuff. So for me, it was every, like if, if my wife Lisa was here, she would say that I came home for the first three months saying, this is dumb. Like, I don't know. These people are nuts. They love psychology more than Jesus. This like, But I was I was kind of shedding a limited Bible college point of view. And I want to be really careful. I don't know that the Bible college gave it to me as much as I picked it up there. Some, like, I think we're really quick to say, ah, but I was young. I was black and white in my thinking. So, uh, and, and this was our first year of marriage. Like my first day of chaplaincy was um, <clears throat> the first day after our honeymoon. So I went in so green so they start asking, you know, what are you afraid of when you walk into the room? And uh, one that really got me is I was avoiding the labor and delivery uh, floor. Yeah. And they're like, oh, that's curious. You visit every floor but this one. Um, are you attracted to one of the nurses? And I'm like, no, of course not, because I'm married. And they're like, yeah, we're not saying. But they would really force you to, to realize you have all this humanity Something in me flipped. I, I don't remember what it was. Something in me flipped three months and I'm like, wait a minute. This is an, unbel- where am I ever in my life going to have six people speaking into my life who care for me, who are showing me things I can't see and giving me an opportunity. What they were really doing is saying, uh, as pastors, we tend to bring all our strengths to God and say, hey, I can, I can use these. And what they were saying is God can reach through all your strengths to all your weaknesses and pain and sin and fear and he's in all of that as well that for me that changed everything so now that I'm like I've walked through that door and I'm now in this new world it really was for me like a matrix like you can't go back now I've seen the power of naming my own fears what am I afraid of what's going on under the surface Um, so 
So then fast forward after the chaplaincy, I went to seminary and I just took every family systems theory class I could. Um, I did, I think, 16 graduate hours or something in, in um, psychology. And it was a theology degree. And then I went to uh, Las Vegas, to Central Christian Church in Las Vegas, and I did crisis intervention for them. And man, like when people come in off the street and you don't know them, and they're suddenly making you feel like you alone can help them. And you, the, 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 like it may have taken years for them to get into trouble, but somehow you start believing the lie that this is the only moment where they can get better. And if I don't drop everything I'm doing now, and I'm the only one that can help them. So all of that chaplaincy training helped me in Vegas as well. Notice, like, why am I feeling, why am I suddenly feeling a need to save this person's life? Um, so I started using it there. And then I'd say the next gate for me was when I became a lead pastor. And Discovery didn't have any money to hire anyone with training. So we only hired people from outside our, uh, from inside our church, just members. And then we trained them on the job in, as staff. And I could see these really good people, many of whom are still on staff, amazing people, but I could see them starting to um, go into recurring patterns. And so I reached back into my chaplaincy, and that's when, that's kind of was the genesis of the book and the podcast, is it was about seven years ago now. I thought, I, I, need, to, I need to figure out how can I replicate what I learned in chaplaincy for my church staff, because I don't want to lose them. Uh, and so we started this class. It's a nine-month class we do. And I think now we're on our sixth or seventh year. I don't remember. So I think it's it's pretty amazing that you're comparing uh, hospital chaplaincy to leading a team. Because when you think about it, uh, chaplaincy, you're walking into crisis situation, life and death. Um, you know, a lot of people dealing with a lot of emotions, and you're drawing this... Uh, just direct comparison to leading a team, whether it's church, business, like what are what are the biggest, as you sat down to study how you're going to connect it to uh, church leadership, business leadership, what were some of the most amazing connections that you made when you're like, uh, this is unreal how similar crisis chaplaincy and leading a team is? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I think I first started putting it together in Vegas. And then I think it was out of desperation here at Discovery that I realized I have to figure this connection out. And the connection for me is that um, when you're in a crisis situation as a chaplain, the the pressure you feel to do something is overwhelming. Uh, people are screaming or like I, I've shared it before. Some people would like vomit. Like they just have a physical reaction. And, and when you don't know what to do, you immediately feel like you have to do something. And it took me that experience to learn that feeling is an anxiety response. Like one of the things Brendan and I are trying to help people understand is anxiety doesn't mean you worry a lot. Worry is a subset. Worry is one symptom of anxiety. Anxiety is how do I not show up fully? How am I protecting something in myself. So yeah, in chaplaincy, you're in, you're in the face of unhinged grief and you're feeling all this internal pressure. Like for me, I, there's a something in me that needs to look smart or that I need to look like I know what I'm doing. So when I don't know what I'm doing, I get anxious. I didn't know that for several months. I, I feel like the only healthy leadership is vulnerable leadership is bringing all of yourself 
And like Josh, you were saying before, when you're trying to figure out your question, what you're really saying is, I don't want to be the only one in the room that doesn't know my own issues, right? Like, yeah, that's absolutely. Kind of, that's like the worst. Yeah. And so I, I, that's where I think leadership is just vulnerability. It's just bringing all of yourself, um, all of your fears, all of your frustrations, and instead of them getting the better of you, learning how to harness them really to me for the gospel. So, so when I walk in and I'm like, I, I, I tend to feel like that is the way that I, that I do lead. Like people will see both sides. What are, what are some ways that you can guard from like showing up and, and being too raw with this is blatantly me. You know what I mean? Uh, Unhinged. Yes. Like the unhinged version of, okay, so I'm going to do transparency, but do you feel like there's an, unhealthy way to be to be that yeah. uh, with the people that you lead or the people that you serve yeah you, you're trying to you're trying to harness your vulnerability for their sake I think that's the difference if, if so so I'll often call a friend of mine who I don't lead when I'm really in need of help oh my first calls are not usually to my team if I'm like melting down but I'll my team will know that I melted down or once in a while, I've had people who work for me and I'll say, I really need your help right now. But it's not a pattern I, 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 because I think then I'm burdening them. But if you can harness your vulnerability for the sake of your team, I think that's the line I'm trying to walk. The good piece that I heard, sorry, I keep interrupting you, is that like they know that you're melting down, but the person there's there's a person or persons that feel the rawness of that. Yeah. But the whole team may know that you're melting, but there's only a, a select few that will like feel the rawness of what that is. So that, that makes sense. That's right. And, and also when you do lead vulnerably like this, like my team do know my blind spots and sometimes see them before I do. And I've had team members come to me and say, you're not healthy right now. And that usually ends up being combative. And then later I'll go back and say, thanks. Yeah, and then but then we debrief. You're unhealthy, man. Yeah, you're. No, yeah. I know I you are, but what am I? Yeah. But um, but even like with a couple of team members, particularly, I'll just say to them, "Thank you," and I know it's combative in the moment, and I appreciate you sticking with it. You know, it's even that's a vulnerable. And thing control your facial expressions. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They're putting up with me in the moment, right? But we put up with each other. I mean, that's the. You said something really interesting in the beginning where. Um, I had this visual of like, I think a lot of people either get into leadership or ministry or, or whatever that looks like. And the moment that they realize that they're becoming a leader in some sort of capacity, it's like, it's like you're in the, the helicopter going to drop in and you've got 10 seconds to grab all the tools you think you need. And then you're out the back. And, and like when I know when I stepped into ministry, I thought I had all the tools that I needed. So like, you know, I picked confidence. I picked, uh, you know, all this, all this stuff. And then I shot out the back of the helicopter and dropped into the war zone. You know what I mean? But, but what I'm interested in, in is, okay, so now that you're, you're on the ground doing all this stuff and you're having these moments where you're realizing, okay, maybe I didn't even pick enough tools, let alone the right tools or, or whatever that looks like. I think, um, a piece of that is this leadership anxiety and managing it. Um, but I imagine like you get to this point after dropping in that you look like the people that are trying to finish the the marathons while they're cramping. <laughs> like you, you finally get to that point where you're just stumbling and stumbling. And I think that's what you were alluding to at the beginning of the, 
the conversation, Josh, is like, how do you identify before you start being that guy that's cramping at the end of the marathon as a leader? And, and what's the first step? Because we, we're coming to you today as punks that really don't have any background or training on this kind of stuff. So like, what's the first self-evaluation process of finding out, like you've mentioned, finding the things that you're afraid of. We don't have a chaplaincy that's pushing back at us asking if, you know, why we avoid floors, but we feel it. I think you feel that, or at least you feel it and then, you know, push it to that's, the side. I think or, that's honestly the first step though. Yeah. So I think we can do this right now. Yeah. So, so we're going to start with physiology with you guys. We'll ask you some physiological questions and then we'll get into some, we'll see if you can name one or two fears and let's see how it goes. But yeah, like this, this whole journey, the, the challenge of the podcast is this is in our context this is a nine month experience. And it is a slow process. But what you're trying to do is most people don't know they're anxious in the moment. And, but later, you're like, ah, why am I so worked up? So the first step is to lower your threshold mentally to get to, to know what makes you anxious. So you can start to know it in the moment. And then when you get practice, you can actually start to predict it. So chaplaincy again. Um, I'd go into rooms, I'd be completely unaware of my fear of death. But over the weeks and months, I'd notice in the moment, oh man, I don't want to be here right now. And then uh, over the months, fourth death in a day, I'm walking into the room knowing I don't want to be in that room. And so by the time I get to the room, I've done all the work I need to do to be present to the people. So we can do that with you guys right now. So you, what you're going to try to do is figure out how to know when you're anxious you want to jump in? Let's do it. Yeah. I, I have some like I have some stuff that's like very recent, like even before we started listening to your podcast and in, in anticipation of your book, um, that I've recognized. I go, this is not healthy that I feel this way in this moment. Yeah. But I see that I feel this way. Yeah. So how does it start physiologically for you, Josh? Uh um I would say not like uh, there's a physical sensation on the outside of my body. Like I just kind of felt it just talking about it because I was remember I had a moment last night in, st- in student ministry that uh, put me in that circumstance. And, and I don't mind sharing with you guys. It's when um, it is when, man, this is so embarrassing to say. You got to sit in the silence. It's man, when someone is, deep in hurt and pain and I know that there is nothing I can do to alleviate alleviate the situation because I can't be, because there is nothing of my humanity that can help I will avoid that circumstance and I and like shameful to say that as a pastor right uh, very um, common I think yeah so, so it could be uh, I have a good friend that is a um that is an old, older gentleman that served the kingdom faithfully for decades, uh, struggling with uh, dementia, and it's hard for me to visit. And I know that it's my, it's it's my anxiety that makes it that I can't sit with with him in that in that moment. And uh, I, I have another friend, a World World War II vet, that uh, his wife has passed away, and it's it's a struggle for me to go visit because I know he is sitting in such, such pain and there's, and there's nothing that I can provide. 
So let's camp on these. So either your, your friend with dementia or the veteran, mm -hmm. you're avoiding being with them. Um, are you able to notice physiologically, you mentioned a tingling? It's, it would be more like, a, like if anything, it would just be a, um, like a half goose, goose bump on side of my side of my body. And then, and then it's not a, it's not nausea. It is an unsettledness. It's an unsettledness there. Yeah, yeah. So you you have the gift of a physiological response, and now you can be hyper aware. That's step number one: is when you feel that tightening gut and that tingling, you know, okay, I need an intervention. What normally happens is we we're just not conscious of it until it's named, and it's kind of like when you're shopping for a car and you're thinking, oh, I'd like to get a. Honda Accord, and then you just see Honda Accords everywhere. Now you're going to be, just by naming it, you're actually going to be more aware. It's crazy how it works. And it's, what, what it's doing is, is naming it flips the power dynamic because anxiety had you in its grip. But now that you're saying, ah, oh, the, the tightening stomach and the tingling, that's my sign, you start to get power over it. So that's step one. So Parker, why don't we just go to you too? So spinning mind, racing heart, tightening gut. 100% spinning mind. Yeah. 100%. And and recently I've been diving into Enneagram stuff and, and realizing that um, the spinning mind is how to avoid the pain in the situation, right? So like if I can outsmart it, I can get out of it. That's right. You can worry your way through yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, spinning mind for sure. Good. Yeah. So I'm I'm spinning mind guy. So I've spent years working on it. So my intervention is if I lay down at night and I'm thinking about it, and if I wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about it, that's when I know I need an intervention. So that the, I, I kind of set myself these early detection warning device, almost like a tornado warning. So that's what you need to do too, Josh, is, is start to get less patient. Now, having said that, your mind will still spin and your gut will still tighten. It's, it's not that it'll go away. It's that it won't have mastery over you anymore. Yeah, so like I had this, so with last night, it's it's been frustrating to me my response in as a as a minister in those moments it's been it's been shameful and frustrating to me and so last night i was in the circumstance and like immediately i was like i i don't want to be here i don't want to be here and then i go god needs me to be here and and if I don't know how to fix it, and that makes me uncomfortable. That's my issue, not theirs. And God needs me to be in this moment uh, here, even if I stumble over my words and like, like embarrassing. Going seventeen years of ministry and like going, I've I've got nothing. And I think that's that's a lot too with this this whole concept is also understanding that the people that you're trying to love are going through the same thing as well, and so you're you're ultimately like you're saying josh is like you're not ultimately the fix but being present or or whatever you know is is that first step so yeah so let's are you comfortable diving into this why you're avoiding oh, a little bit? absolutely that doesn't bother me i'm i the the whole part of being transparent i wear pretty easily i think so you can dig as far as you want to dig yeah so the the next step once you get physiological is you try to name as concretely and specifically as possible what you're afraid of. Or the other way to think about it is, what do I think I need in this moment that I actually don't need? Like, like 
the whole theology of this stuff is that we have a false self that tells us we need something in any given moment that we don't actually need. And that's why we're anxious. And the gospel is outside of that anxiety. So if you can name it and die to it, you can actually experience grace in a deeper way. So I spend most of my life feeding my false self that tells me something I need. So I need to look smart. That's why I would avoid this guy. I might avoid this guy because my capacity to care for lonely people has been maxed. So like um, we went through an era in our church where uh, four young dads passed away tragically in five years. It was crazy. And three of the four were dear, dear friends of mine. One was the chairman of my elders. One was my volunteer worship leader. And one was in my life group. And um, the last guy to pass away in my life group, he got diagnosed a month after we buried the chairman of my elders. And I just, I couldn't handle it. Like, so, so John shared the news and I could feel in myself, I can't do this. So it took me a good three months. Like I actually uh, took a step back and empowered my life group to care. And then I stepped in toward the last half of John's journey. He died, I want to say 10 months after he was diagnosed. Um, but I just, for me, so I, I just knew, I'm like, I, I don't have, I can't keep burying my friends on Saturday and then preaching on Sunday. It was just killing me. So sometimes you name it and then you just know you have to go get care. So I went to counseling during that time. I was just grieving. And how do you, how do you grieve and lead at the same time? It's the wor- it's the worst. Like, so you may have a very real reason not to go see these guys. It, it doesn't have to be shameful. And it might be that you work through this and then you realize, I don't have the capacity. Because I think most leaders we do believe or have unlimited capacity. And I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's a faith in God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we don't realize that we really are human. Finally, a great use of that verse. No. Getting, u- getting used when it should be. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, we tend to say, oh, I've, I've got unlimited capacity. But th- that may be it. But, but it may be something else. It may be that you're afraid of dying. It may be that you're afraid of loneliness. It may be that you're lonely. Um, Is any of this triggering anything where you think you can name right in the moment, like, here's why I'm avoiding? You know, in in mentioning that, I mean, I can remember from like a middle school age of just struggling with loneliness. And like, like I could see that probably being a piece of that, like being, man, just seeing this, you know, it could be reminding me of, of, uh, isolation and like you know what i mean like i i could see that that's man that's one of those questions that i like i really want to like this will probably be a discussion of our long road home of like man i really want to think about this and go um but but i could definitely see that so let's jump in on this one so let's say that you have some fear of loneliness which makes you exactly human right like every i think every one of us here that's a fear let, let's say that you also, as a leader, feel a pressure to know what to do and you don't actually know what to do. Like, so these are two, and I might be projecting. No, no like when, when you say that, like, I can't tell you how many times I've, like, I've uh, leaned in on other ministers and go, hey, when you walk into this, man, what do you, how do you approach it? So let's take your um, dementia gentleman. Now let's take your World War II veteran. Is he does he have dementia? Or is... No, he is he is super sharp. Uh, dude is in his mid nineties, still is a great driver. 
<laughs> ironically enough. But no, he's very sharp. All right, let's take this guy. Um, one of the tools that would be one of the most powerful pastoral tools is to confess your sin to him. By which I mean, hey, I, I got to tell you, I, I've been avoiding you because I'm afraid that you're lonely. And that reminds me that I feel lonely too. I guarantee not a pastor in his life has ever done that to him. And he will care for you. And he will have a human to human connection with you. That will be like nothing you've ever had. So I learned how to do this as a chaplain. And it was ridiculous where, you know, for half of my chaplaincy, we did hospice care where people have six months or less to live. So I did a lot of funerals or I went to a lot of funerals. And I'll never forget the Jinx family. Um, Mrs. Jinx died. And I went with Pete. He was an older gentleman. And I think I had visited the Jinxes four times before she died. Uh, twice in their house and twice in the hospital. And so over the four times, I probably had a total of two hours with them, maybe two and a half. And one of those times, um, she wanted to die and he was terrified that she was going to die. So I remember the fear. And I remember my ability to be in the fear and not try to make it okay. Go to the funeral. Their pastor of 25 years does the service. And Pete introduces me to everybody as his pastor. 25 years versus two and a half hours. That's the power, I think, of you going to this veteran and saying, um, it's hard for me to be here because I feel like you're lonely. Now, at that point, he might say, get the blank out of here. That might happen. Maybe. He might, he might say, how condescending that you think I'm lonely. I have a great life. Yeah. Or he might say, yeah, I'm really glad you came. But thanks for overcoming that and... And from there, now you do your pastoral call, you know, and, and it's a risk and you might decide it's not a good idea. Uh, risk is fun. I enjoy it. So like, yes, doing something like that is like within, I would say the things that I enjoy stepping into the awkwardness of those conversations. And with that, in my, in my long 27 years here on this planet, <laughs> yeah, I, I have, I have decided I've, I've, I've talked myself into knowing that if it's awkward, it probably matters. If it feels awkward, it probably really matters. I think we're trained as pastors to take that whole side of us that's a human and pretend it's not there. But when you take your humanity and, and like baptize it or give it to God, it's, there's a whole power that a pastor has that um, is a whole other gear. So then let's take your, your dementia friend. It, it might be, in his case, that how do you relate to somebody who's not as sharp and you're just feeling the need to do something? And so then I don't, in his case, it's not as appropriate to confess, right? Like sometimes it's inappropriate. Yeah, like that wouldn't work for me to come and say, hey, it's it's difficult for me to be here because I don't think you know who I am right. and I don't think you know what day you know what i mean like those awkward things it's like no i have social skills i'm not going to say this to you because that would be hurtful that's right yeah because because the whole point of vulnerability is for the person in front of you and that's why that's how you know is because i think for your veteran it would probably be a gift of humanity in, it, that's my take i mean this things this is like dr phil right like yeah, dr sure. phil hears two minutes of context and gives 20 minutes of advice yeah 
that's kind of how he makes his show. This feels the same. Like we don't know anything about this guy. Hey, I understand. But you understand. can you can contextualize. But the theology behind it is Paul says, you know, in Timothy, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. He uses present tense. And I think we always think he means before he was converted when he was killing Christians. I think he means present. I think he's like, and, and the next passage is, I'm, I'm the chief of sinners in whom Christ's, like Christ's death is sufficient. And to me, this is how you live it out as a pastor. You go to this guy and you say, I, I want to apologize. I've been avoiding you because I don't know what to do. And then if he's any normal human, he'll be like, wow, okay, let's. And then you'll probably have a really rich encounter. The, uh, the dementia guy, I think you have to do the work internally. You have to figure out why. I think it's because I don't know what to say. And when I, I think it's because every time I ask him a question, it doesn't go anywhere. And then I, what I would be doing then is trying to name that and give it to God. And, and just like we did with physiology, you flip the power dynamic. Now you have the fear instead of it having you. And I don't know, I'd try to find 10, I'd bring board games and sing songs and like, I play guitar. Singing often, songs would not be a blessing to him if I was singing songs. Yeah, it's, yeah, you'd have to figure out what fits. So I've often brought a, just an instrument to people in that situation where I was playing music um, and give up trying to talk. This kind of uh, going deeper down the rabbit hole of, I think once you're able to name why you're anxious or what's causing it and that you're able to say, okay, I'm anxious and you start to notice it more. I think the other aspect that can come into play is um, realizing that the way, the reason, some of the reasons why you might be anxious have to do with something that happened to you when you were maybe younger or years ago. And so that's going deeper down the rabbit hole of what, after you've kind of started to notice it more, what from your childhood has caused you to perhaps create this vow in a sense that you have, I'm never going to be like this, or maybe it's something that happened to you where now every time that you're in those situations, you get triggered to the point where it's like, oh, I can't handle this right now. And it, I, I think that's that's even deeper down the rabbit hole. That's right. right. Yeah, we have two tools. So the childhood vow is a tool that we teach. I think we're doing an episode on that in March or April with Jim Harrington. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a genogram, which we covered briefly with Glenn Packiam yep. early in the podcast. But a genogram, when you look at your family history, you start to figure out some things you've inherited. But you, you already went there, Josh, like with your middle school. That, that middle school ache is an amazing pastoral tool. Um, and I think the best gift I give to my congregation is to try to be as fully human as I can in front of them and then and show them all the areas of my life that the gospel invades. Um, so my loneliness for sure. I think I just realized too, if you're going to embark on this journey, it is so important to have someone next to you or, or walking through that with you because not only could you get buried in all of this, but I could also see your vulnerability. Like as if like, <laughs> I feel like my seven type or even like I'm, I'm tempted to be a manipulator. You know what I mean? And so when you, when you were talking about um, vulnerability um, being for the sake of the other person, my first thought was, my God, it could be a weapon too, because then all of a sudden I'm being quote unquote vulnerable, but I'm telling you how you're making me uncomfortable and I'm just being vulnerable with you, you know? And like, it's almost like you need someone with eyes on the, on, on you that like can see your 
like your behavior and help you steer through all that stuff too. Because I mean, like self-defense mechanisms kick in quicker than anything I feel like in life, you know? And, and so I could totally see where this is not a journey to be walked alone, um, through all of that. Yeah. And we've definitely had people go through the class where they do use it as a weapon. Like oh, yeah. they don't use it to grow themselves. They use it to point out all your issues. Yeah. When you're giving your vulnerability to each other, there's a sensitivity there. Yeah. Hey, it's your turn. It's my turn. Yeah. Time to time for him to point some fingers at you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, if you're done with me, I'm not wanting to... If you're done, are you yes. done with me? Am I fixed? to a counseling session? <laughs> no, no, no. Not at all. Not, no. Here's the... All that being said, like, like, I have recognized that it's my immaturity in the moment with my friend with dementia, and I know that. I know it's it's my issue. Yeah. I know that. It is nothing they've done, and it's like... And, it's, and I wasn't expecting, like, fix-it things. Like, man, I never thought... But honestly, never thought about... Um, am I am I like afraid to be alone, and like and what that's been like? Like that's been a lifelong journey. That's right. Uh, I'm not sure what it's been like for my parents. I've seen it in my own kids. Like, um, I can't can't spare you guys. The I can't offer the details just to guard their uh guard their story. Uh, but I've seen lo- loneliness be a role in all three of my kids, and it and like talk about breaking my heart. Uh, which thank, thankfully, like I've been able to step into that and to hold them and go, Hey, me too, you know, with them. Um, but it's not quite as easy with, uh, yeah. It's not as natural with your so-called flock as it is with your kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're just encouraging everyone to integrate into every fiber of your life, this kind of approach. And, you know, one of the, it's not as earnest as we make it sound either. Like it is, it should be life-giving and freeing. It is work. But you, I, I, before, Parker, we get to your thing, like I think, Josh, you brought up a valid point is people look at our material and they say, oh, it's self-awareness. But it's not. Like you're already self-aware. What our material is trying to do is get you to move from self-awareness to actually true transformation yes and that's the piece that i feel like like that's the piece i like when it comes to when people talk about self-awareness i'm like no i'm i feel like i a pretty self-aware guy i i i I see it it's like what the heck do i do with it now what what do i do with it yeah jump in on are we are we discussing my feelings well, here, are we di- here's are we moving on to, on questions you, well he said he was well he was okay. the thing i don't want to miss in this time ministry wise is i desperately want to hear what you're seeing in the next generation when it comes to anxiety because i think there's some unique things uh about in uh, millennials what i'm seeing it no not even millennials uh the Zen, our kids yeah the, the zennials they or what whatever the latest name they've given them like, like I'm telling you, like, like I feel like I, I feel like I see things that are just like that are anxiety related. That it's like this is so, like, where does this come? Like, we can get into that, but I want Parker to have the opportunity. 
No, it is an opportunity. To walk it's through an the, opportunity. the physiology. Just for you to, act, just to act, you to ask those same questions so I can look at him and, and laugh at him. Just kidding. Yeah, right. Okay. So, yeah, you've got... Yeah, we could do we could double up and and do a case study for you, or we could do some new material either way. Well, Josh is really interested in what's going on under the hood of my life, so so let's go. All right, so you, it's a spinning mind. So, what's a situation that you're either give us a story of something you're either avoiding, or you went into it knowing it would be difficult, or you came out of it really spun up. Those would be the three good. Um, the most recent one was someone's misunderstanding of my behavior or like they perceived me as being, um, standoffish or they perceived me as being not my typical self. And in the situations that this person perceived me, it was every other week or, or a few times out of the last six months or something. And I've, and I've been kind of doing a lot of self-work and kind of go like learning how to grow up you know so so i'm learning how to be more quiet and and kind of take in more and and be less loud and upfront and stuff so so i'm kind of changing through through a process too but it got communicated non-verbally and even possibly verbally that i had something against a person communicated to you or to a third party to me ah Okay. How was it communicated non-verbally? How did you pick that up? Um, behavior. They started behavior. acting differently. Mm-hmm. And and I was there. There was no hard feelings on my side, at all. And and I was just kind of learning how to be a quieter man and <laughs> and taking the world a bit. Um, Who made the first move? Did you go to that person and say, "Hey, something's different," or did they go to they you? they made the first move when it came to. Um, the the confrontation of of reconciliation they made the first move and and i don't know for better for worse josh and i have really in like ingrained in us this idea of assuming the best of people and so we just assume the best and don't assume the worst and so maybe it was me avoiding pain but it also was me assuming the best of going no they probably assume the best of me like you know i'm going through some stuff personally and 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 so they know i love them you know, and so I, I didn't really think a whole lot about it. Yet they had this whole 180 degree different perception of our relationship because of my my, my change. I suppose I I don't know I don't know. So so yeah, the confrontation came to me. Confrontation came to me. Yeah, is it hard for you when people misunderstand your intent? Hate it. I don't know if there's something uh, I hate more in life than being misunderstood or making a stupid mistake in that realm of of someone like a like a joke going wrong, or uh, or um, not putting a smile on when someone's watching because I work at a church or whatever that pressure is. Like I'm constantly aware of that pressure, and I don't I don't know if it's just who I am or or if it goes into a deeper fear. But but yeah, I'm always aware of that. Yeah. So let's chase it a little different direction than we did with Josh. So you, one of your felt needs in the moment is to be understood, which I think is a very common. That's one of mine. It drives me crazy when people misunderstand me. Um, part of our material uh, that is a little deeper than we may cover today is oftentimes our attempted solution to a problem makes the problem worse, not better. So if you get misunderstood... What's your next internal move? Are you able to name what you do to manage 
being misunderstood. Well, I first think of all the reasons they hate me. Good. And then I think of all the reasons they shouldn't hate me. I'm a nice guy. Yeah. Like, hey, I've, you know, I've, I've done you a favor or whatever. I'm hard not to like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so so that's the beginning of the spin is like I zoom out 30,000 feet and I go, what the heck's going on around here? You know, but uh, honestly, in doing that, I'm, I'm probably setting up my defense lines. You know what I mean? More than I am like, I, I'm going to fix this. I'm really into this whole art of reconciliation. And, you know, this just beats my heart or whatever. Okay, good. And then can you name what happens? Up? So you, you do the mental game. Are you saying that you move into self-righteousness? Like you prove yourself innocent in your mind? I can sometimes. Other times I... Okay, are you the kind of people that will go through an entire conversation in the mirror? Not out loud. Have you ever done that? <laughs> yes. But, uh, okay, let's try this. Do you do a fantasy fight where you are? Yes, 100%. Okay, that's the thing. That's what you do. You 100%. Do fight. I go, okay, I'm going to work this through. But like, can I we might just as well just experience this. He does this. it out loud, right? He does it out loud, I think. That's yeah. amazing. I'll do it in the car. So like if I have a hard conversation you, coming. Do you change our, your voice? Our friendship's been really no. tough over the years, I think. Because no, <laughs> no. I don't change my voice. I say my side of the story. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm guessing their response. You're always right. And I don't, I don't think it's that I'm always right. It might be that, but I'm really trying to work through what I'm guessing they're thinking. So it's, I mean, it's probably blanketed in self-righteousness, but I'm not, I'm not trying to dominate as much as I'm trying to like win back. Yeah. You know what I mean? One form of self-righteousness, because self-righteousness gets a bad rap because in the Bible, it's like the terrible, terrible thing. One form of it is defensiveness. But it, it, all self-righteousness is is you're standing on self instead of on Christ for your worth. And so I, I can relate. Again, I'm projecting. I know if I'm misunderstood, I'll go into a fantasy fight and I'm always right. Or at least by the time we're done, they see my side. They're like, oh, it's not that I yeah. need them to be yep. wrong. It's that I need them to come around. Yeah, I need you to understand me. That's still self-righteousness. <laughs> because we had a misunderstanding. So, so a pathway for you is to learn to be misunderstood and be okay. And that is work. Like, to, to literally... Yucky. Yeah, so you get your spinning mind, you go around the world, you do your little mirror thing, which is just amazing. And somewhere <laughs> in that... Can ju- I be a chapter in your book? Did you say too much? Study? You might have said too much. Somewhere in that journey... Uh, you're going to intervene now and you're going to say, you know what? Um, I don't need to be understood, actually. Um, Jesus died to free me from needing to be understood. So this person is going to misunderstand me and I'm going to be able to still see them as fully human and not like either demonize them or sell them. So you know what's funny is I feel like I actually tried this this last time by being quiet and just assuming the best and going you know what they know i love them so i actually tried it and it didn't work out well it didn't work out because you really tried it so they'd understand you the goal is that they can stay misunderstanding you and you be okay that's why it didn't work is you you tried it like to say i'm gonna be quiet and believe the best and then they'll come around the goal of this is that they never come around that is i can't even begin to think about that that just makes my insides turn upside down That's right. sideways. It's man. awful. It's like, the worst. So you and I had so remember when we were gonna switch offices? Yes. We had this moment. Yeah. Where we talked about it, created tension, 
and we went away and neither of us understood each other. And but we were gonna like stand there in the midst of it until we understood each other. Yeah. And it was like like the mirror wasn't needed because we were having it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and usually the this at least my solution is more words. If someone doesn't understand yeah. me, more words is what I go it, to. It's funny how our different personality types all interact with the being understood thing. Because mine is, I'm going to power up and I'm going to tell you how it is. Like, ex- explain more words. And yeah, Brendad. <laughs> Come here, I'm going to tell you this. Hey, by the way, with Brendad and listening to episode eight, I realize I'm never going to call you that again. Because that's a that's a painful that's a painful term for you. After I heard that, I go, I can never call him that again. You know what? That. I really appreciate you saying that. Because a lot of people, guys especially, use each other's vulnerability. To poke fun. To poke fun. I've got a a friend of mine, he has a sensory, not disorder, but people scrape a spoon on a bowl or something. And he has several friends that enjoy, like we'll be in a meeting and they'll just start doing something. Let's just camp on this thing though. This This is a game changer to, like where we say everyone has problems and everyone attempts to solve their own problems. That may be what happened. You were misunderstood, so your attempt was to be quiet and believe the best. But your goal was still at that understand. Is that accurate? I'm not sure. I I don't know if it was more of a this will blow over kind of thing or if it was. And this is, I mean, I'm so different now than I was two years ago. And so I think I'm... I'm kind of storming the beaches of of this idea of being okay with people not being okay because it used to be, like you said, think about it until you fall asleep, first thing you wake up, shadow box in the mirror and you know go and figure out everything I'm going to say that day and how I'm going to go through it and everything. But I've, I've found more grace than that. And um, so I don't know. I, I think as you, as you lead me through it, it, it could have been that. Or it may, be, it may be just that the goal is that you're okay being actively misunderstood, right? That you don't actually have to do anything. You can rest in Christ. And of course, again, sometimes the best thing to do is go reconcile. It's not like you, sometimes you're a jerk if you don't go. But it's more you're in, it's like an idol or it's a thing you think you need inside that's blocking the gospel. That would be what I'd say about it. When you talk about going and reconciling, there's a difference between a lot of people want to go and reconcile and in their heart, they feel like part of this reconciliation means I need to know that you understand me. And what you're saying is reconciliation is I love you and I want unity with you. Even if I'm misunderstood, yeah. is that, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I want to make sure I'm hearing you. Yeah, correctly. It's the same thing. Like I think leadership is always for the other, like you should be dying for the people you're leading. So what does that look like to die to self and to die to your own interests? Yeah, I suppose I'm confused by the concept of I'm okay leaving misunderstandings lie because I feel like a conflict isn't finished then. So I'll give it, see if this helps. Because again, I'm really, I'm really sensitive to the Dr. Phil syndrome in these situations. So I'm a preacher. I like being provocative and I want people to like me. That's torture. That's just the, it's the worst. I, I write a manuscript, but I preach off the cuff. So I write it, try to memorize it, and then I try to never look at it. So I say stupid things and things I don't mean in the sermon. But I also have a way of presenting that sounds very certain. So I say stupid things certainly and things I don't mean certainly. And so that generates a lot of misunderstanding. 
And I just have to live with the fact that by nature of the way I communicate and by nature of people's foibles, there's always going to be a level of misunderstanding that my effort will never resolve. So this this brings to my attention, I more than I have a fear of a misunderstanding, I have a fear of a mistake. Ah. I think. And that's, that's and a I, big problem. And I've recognized that about a year and a half ago. And I had this <laughs> I had this great moment where I was I was conversing with a great friend um and He's he's far along in in years compared to me and has much more wisdom. And I was looking at a shelf and I said I would never build that shelf. And he goes, why wouldn't you? That totally looks like something you would like in your house. And I go, I would mess up an angle and then it would lean and I just wouldn't even start because I'm afraid to even have that be a part of my house. And he goes, he like looks over his glasses at me and he goes, you gotta get over that. And then he just walks away. And I remember that was a defining moment for me in my life. So, so in this in this situation, I think even when I'm I'm fighting in my mind or or whatever you you we called that, it might be to finalize all mistakes. Yeah, what's so wrong about making a mistake? What's going to happen after that? Rhetorical question, maybe, but not at all. <laughs> no, <Nope>. not at <laughs> all. Not you at all. You and I actually talked about this on the phone about a month month ago, right? right? About yeah. a month ago. Yeah, it's a real thing where. You know, I, I think I told you that the biggest thing that I learned was mistakes are okay. Like making mistakes is a good thing. And I think growing, being your friend and growing up with you, you know, from high school till now, you, you're part of your personality type is that you're a perfectionist. And I think it, it's been, it's been fun to watch you make more mistakes. Cause I think you've been making more of them, but I think your comfortability of, you want to do things so well that when you make a mistake, it's the end. It's the end of the world to you. Yes, uh, fear of abandonment. That's it. Like if, if like if I mistake, mess this up, they're going to leave me. Is is Josh hierarchically your boss? I am one of two youth ministers. Who can who can remove you from your job? Scott Jones and now Dan Walter. Mm-hmm. You need somebody to keep you accountable to make sure you're making a healthy number of mistakes. So it it could work for Josh if you guys have like an accountability relationship, but it works best when it's the person that has your paycheck over your head. Uh, But of course they have to believe in a culture of mistake making. And, and when I think about it, I honestly believe I have every opportunity to fail. I feel like I have the trust available to me. I feel like I have I, I feel like I can be creative to solve the problems I need to, and I can go for it. I feel that way in in the where in where I work. Um, this would be like childhood vows and childhood wounds and yeah, stuff. One hundred percent. And so when when I think of all of that, oh, I was just gonna, I was gonna say something about that. Um, oh, okay. So if you if we're talking enneagram, disintegration for me is a one. That's a judgy perfectionist, right? That's how I, I like you inherit the the worst traits of a one. Isn't that right? But when I integrate, I move towards a five that learns things to help people, right? Which there's got to be mistakes in learning things to help people. And so I think, I think I'm on that journey, but it feels like I'm dragging a 10-ton hammer behind me of, of that fear. So, so one tool... Like a lot of what we do is externalize what's internal. So you could actually get out a piece of paper, even if you're a digital dude, I'd still do paper. 
and write names of people who you think will abandon you. Because what happens with anxiety is you don't even know you're believing a stupid, like literally a stupid lie. Because you probably have these unspoken names. And as soon as you write them out, you're like, they're not going to abandon me. Like, but I've done this so many times, it's embarrassing. Like where I realize, wait, I'm, I'm believing a lie. And um, the only way I know how to shed it is to physically write it and look at it. And then it's like a, for me, I turn into a prayer journal. But yeah, you could make a list of who actually will abandon you the next time you build a bad cabinet. And then you should absolutely build a shelf. And if, if I were coaching you, I would make you do it like a, a degree and a half off. And I would make You're you... You're a terrible person. Are, are you married, by the way? <laughs> yes. I would make you take it to your wife or somebody who's a perfectionist and brag about it. Look, I'm, look at what I did. Um, and the, the technique we use called paradox or um, um, playfulness. Is playfulness is a great antidote to anxiety. It's hard to be anxious and whimsical at the same time. So if your biggest fear is that somebody's going to point out a flaw in your bookcase that you don't see, which I think is probably one of your fears, then build the floor and force yourself to be proud of it. And it'll it'll just help kill that power in you. This is good because I... I already saw that I needed to force myself into these types of things. And so I got my dad's old eighties Huffy road bike and I'm like, I'm going to put tires on it. I don't know how to put tires on it. I'm going to do it. And so I've, I've seen myself because I, you know, saw the face of Scott Jones going, you got to get over that. You know, like I, I see that in my dreams. Right. But, but, and um, probably I, frankly in the mirror. Once right. In a while. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but I've taken on those steps because I see that it like, I've got to grow out of that. I, so I know that. So like, it's just like you were saying, Josh, yeah. self-awareness. Yeah, I'm there. Yeah. I don't know I'm, if you I'm ever, there. I don't know if you ever grow out I think of it. That's a good word. I don't think that you ever grow out of the things that you struggle with. Um, as far as your perfectionism, I'm never going to grow out of my ability to want to be the smartest person in the room. I think this material is not saying I, we're going to fix this. This material is, Hey, you're aware now. Now you can manage it. It has less power of you now. You know what I think people don't realize is the fix doesn't happen this side of heaven. Yeah, that's right. Like, you know what I mean? Like we go through your whole life pursuing being fixed and that's, you're going to be miserable. Yeah. I'm still an anxious person. And, and I still care very much what people think about me. It's just that it used to be that it would keep me up five to nine nights, and now it's down to about two. I'm really proud of that. Like, that's a hard-fought number. Yeah. Um, what do you say in the class? You say you're successful if you, if you notice it or are aware of it. How many? Yeah, three out of ten yeah. is an A yeah. in our wow. class. So we use baseball as our metaphor. Like, a hitter misses... So I'm Australian, so I'm still learning baseball, but like at bat, right? You can talk cricket. The cr- cricket does it, the metaphor breaks down because it's unique to baseball that you get like if you bat 300, you get paid millions of dollars. Yep. What's A-Rod? Anyone know his batting average? Oh, I have no idea. Alex Rodriguez? Isn't it like 310 or something? But I get, but I get the metaphor that yeah, I'm the, now, I'm the now Hall of Famers are... Are losers. Yeah. They screw Vast up. Vast majority of the time. Three, three quarters of the time they 70, screw up. The they get paid millions of dollars a year to make mistakes most of the time. So this is the same. This makes complete sense why baseball didn't work for me. Well, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you should absolutely build a wonky... Like your bookshelf should be so bad that... It's like I had Dr. Seuss. And, and here's the deal. Like it's not try to make a great bookshelf. He's even saying no... 
build the flaws in and brag about that's it. That's right. That's the that's how you break the power of anxiety. Because if you try to build something great and it has flaws, it's only going to feed the feed the anxiety. But if you go, I'm purposefully doing this. I, do you hear that sigh? I know. He's Did you like, hear that sigh? He's like, this is the it dumbest goes, thing ever. It so, goes against everything I've ever lived for. That's right. And he's blushing. And he's blushing. That's because you've had problems and your whole life your attempted solutions only make it worse. So using paradox and absurdity. And again, uh, this is all family systems theory. So in counseling settings, I'll give you context. When a married couple comes in and they're fighting uncontrollably, they want to talk to you about what they fight about, sex or the how to raise the kids. But a family systems therapist is uninterested in what they fight about and wants to focus on the way they fight. And so you start mapping out the pattern of who starts it, who escalates it, who backs away. Because what they fight about changes, but the way they fight is boringly predictable. So I've had couples on the couch before and they're screaming at each other. And I'll just say to them, I'm really bored right now. This is boring because you're just fighting the same damn way. Like, Right, you're fighting the same way you did 20 years ago, um, and so what in systems theory, what they teach counselors to do is to prescribe the problem. So if the problem is you fight all the time, you prescribe a fight, and it's so absurd. So I'll say to them, okay, uh, Wednesday at six o'clock, I want you to really fight and come and I want you to notice how you fight. So Wednesday at six o'clock, have a fight, and then come tell me how it was, and they'll and they're like, that's the no, no, really. If, look, you've come to me for help. If you're going to take it seriously, I want you to do your homework. They'll come back and they're like, we couldn't fight. We tried and we just ended up laughing. And it's just, it's a way to flip the power dynamic. And- a wonky bookshelf. Yeah. So this is what we're doing here is we're making you be proud of failure to break perfectionism's hold. But you'll always struggle with perfectionism. So, so here's... I was a little more defensive when you talked about self-righteousness, but I see what you're saying now when it comes to my perfectionism and my fear of failure does come out of that. Like I have to be as presentable as possible to not be abandoned. Yeah. You're as (laughs) self-righteous as the freaking Pharisees, man. Yeah. But but you peeked out the mic there. (laughs) Yeah. But so I think, I think we always see self-righteousness in the church as this evil, terrible thing. And it is, which is why we're not aware of how self-righteous we are. But yeah, like we, we either stand on self or we stand on the gospel and there's no other option. And so I spend seven out of 10 times in my life standing on self. Yeah, this is absolutely. So let me tackle the next gen thing. I honestly don't think I have much to offer because I think I only have my individual opinion. I don't think my training okay. is informing it because I think my training informs all humanity. Not, I don't think it's unique to a generation. So what, what I see in, in my kids and in the culture now is everybody has to change the world. Everyone feels this pressure to be world changers. Whereas my parents' generation just felt pressure to make a good contribution. It feels like, and I think in the church we've, we've done damage where we tell everybody that they, they can all, we use superlative language. Like, I am not a world changer. I seem to be help. God seems to be using me to change a few thousand people, which is way more than I ever thought. 
but it's not seven billion. But we keep so I've I've seen that in the generation. Um, I think the the good news of the next generation is Yukana will be president. Like actually, only one of us can be president. So stop. This so I see a lot of anxiety in people feeling this need to solve every problem right away, and suddenly every systemic problem in our society. <laughs> We've lost our patience to solve it, and so there's all this hate and animosity. But I don't, I don't think my training has helped helps with this. Um, it's it's maybe I might be able to draw some attention to some of the things that I'm seeing, and and maybe even if you have or haven't been trained, just to give some. Um, again, we're not looking for Doctor Phil. You know, yeah. this is what we're seeing. Yeah, because here are some of the things that I see. It's an it's I feel like it's an unprecedented amount of um, separation anxiety that kids are feeling. That it's that it's so much more, and it's as simple as this. And I'm not asking you, again, not asking you to solve it. Just would love to hear your comments on this. Is like when we go away to camp, the number of students that are 17 years old and can't stay overnight without. Uh, tears and weeping and like you know what I'm saying like something that would be common with a seven or eight year old that maybe it's their first you know weekend overnight camp type thing um, that that type of stuff and also um, I'm asking two questions at once do you want me to stop no go ahead the next one would be um, what I feel like might be uh, anxiety that's created uh, from uh, students that basically live a dual lifestyle when it comes to online presence and physical presence, and the and like I feel I feel like I see anxiety in them because they they don't understand how how to engage with the flesh to flesh. Because um, because they do so much of their communication by way of a simple photograph, uh, text message, a you know what I'm saying, and and their and their social media presence almost has a completely different personality than their physical presence. Yeah, and there's definitely the amount of kids who are putting themselves out there for approval is pretty scary to me. Like the kind of the social media posting a photo and getting rated and all of that. I don't know. I, I think every generation has to wrestle with what they think they need that they don't really need. And how does the gospel invade our fears and what we live for? And so I, I do think this generation has unique challenges. I also see like my kids their bonding and their relational skill, I think is really high. Um, my kids and their friends as I look at them. So I think there's also a lot of strength. It just feels extreme now, I guess. But, but I don't see anything, I don't see that anything's changed in that the kids that are using social media and having a dual life, to me, I just hear a false self when I hear that. And I think the challenge, particularly for student ministry is how young can you start helping kids understand what we've been talking about today? Because like my wife, and my wife's a therapist, by the way, she just finished up her degree and is now practicing, 
we've been doing this with our kids for years and we often wonder if we're spoiling, like poisoning our kids because um, instead of like siding with them and rescuing them, we're using systems theory and making them try these. And we just, we can just see our kids all in therapy in their twenties. Like, yeah, like all I needed is my dad to say that guy's a jerk, but instead dad taught me about triangulation, you know? Um, so, but I, I see in my kids and their friends some really healthy relational dynamics for sure. Um, and then I see them like my, my senior in high school and I, he's just turned 18 and we did a little getaway together and we just, we had so much fun. And just for me to share the gospel with him on like, here's how I see the gospel working in systems and patterns in someone's life. And, um, so I don't know how helpful I am in that. That question for me was seeing if, if there were any observations that you've, you've had and seen understanding that you're, like you said, your training, you, you know, you mentioned that you're like, dude, my training has been something completely different, but, but sometimes in our training, we observe things and we're like, you know what, this has kind of been in the back of my head. And I was just wanting to see if there was anything like that, that's caught hook for you. It was all. So that was, yeah. And one of the, one of the things that you said makes sense with a philosophy that we've really taken is that it all comes down to identity for students. It really all comes down to identity. And so even in our messaging and stuff, we, we look at that and make sure, okay, are we hitting identity on this? And, and what you're saying is what you're hearing is just another false self. Like the, the, the second, the second profile that's a different person is no different from kids sneaking out of the house in the eighties. Right. Or what, you know, all the classic eighties and nineties films of living a dual life. Yeah, that's right. Right. You're saying it's just more sophisticated now. Yes. And, and, easier because you don't have to learn how to get out of your house you yeah you could just lay in your room and do it but but what you said is when it really boils down to identity it's the same issue regardless of the generation regardless of the age regardless of the yeah i i think every teenager and every pastor has to learn how to be loved by god and i think our job is to receive it and then figure out how to unlock it for others and i think it's really hard really hard to do how do you how would you help us help our coaches in the sense of helping them getting over that anxiety of not having the right tools um yeah so i think what you and your coaches can do is get cultivate a habit of sharing what you're afraid of what what am i afraid of? and just have a weekly or a monthly and then cultivate a habit of sharing those fears with the students and inviting the students to share theirs. And then I think in youth ministry, like in our youth ministry, we have some kids that actively sabotage any time the conversation gets serious because it's too hard based on some pain, you know. So I think youth ministry has a unique challenge of those goofy kids. And uh, this is where I wish my wife was here. Um, we run our adult life group with our kids in the room with us often. And so it's it's 12-year-old up to adults. And watching my wife receive the goof from a kid and then find the one little piece of it that she can honor is really been amazing to me. Um, but she's a therapist. She's like a pro. But I think for your coaches, what are they afraid of? What conversations are they avoiding and why? And then like we did with Josh, is it appropriate that they actually lead that to the student? I'm afraid of talking about this with you guys because I don't know. I don't, I didn't grow up in the same world that you grew up in and so I just want to get that out. I don't know, but we need, this is an important conversation. 
but then learning how to invite um, the kids to share their fears. I, I really think the number one gift we have as church leaders is is being fully human. Um, that's why we, we do a whole chapter in the book on why we should stop trying to be like Jesus and we should just follow Jesus. Give up the pursuit of being like Christ. Just die to your false self and follow Jesus and Jesus will be the one that um, transforms. So I do a whole theology in the book on anxiety and how it gets in the way and, and how the way we manage our anxieties, we try harder to be like Jesus. So if, if all you have is your full humanity, I, I think a couple of generations ago, pastors were trained to be personally holy. That was kind of the value. If you were a holy person, which means that you didn't have private, secret, individual sin, like you could screw over the poor, but so long as you didn't cheat on your wife, you're considered holy. So I think for that generation, this would be like my father-in-law's generation, he's a pastor. The temptation was to look holy, right? Have private secret sin, but look like you had it together. I think our generation, we don't value personal holiness. We value hunger. So we we say the hungriest person for Jesus is like the, the winner in, in that sense. And so then I think our temptation is to look hungry. Um, we think we're better than the people who looked holy, but we've just, again, become a different form of self-righteousness. So I think if, if your leaders can hunger after Jesus, find ways that the gospel invades their fears, and learn how to share that with the kids, I think that's... Like, the youth minister at our church is phenomenal. He's, am- he's been there 10 years. He's amazing. But he's been at the graveside with almost all of these kids. And he knows how to be present with them in their pain without trying to make it better. And he's a kid magnet. It's amazing to watch him because he's become a safe person for you to not be okay. Um, I don't know if that scratches. Yeah. um, I think it's that thing with our coaches as far as they feel that they have this title of coach and that they have to have it because they have that title. They are now responsible for knowing these things. And if they don't, so, so it's hard for... I think every time that you talk about vulnerability, all I can think about is just understanding that you're a human. That's so, the vulnerability that's part. So my children, my children know my fears and my congregation knows my fears and my staff know my mistakes. Like, like my middle child, particularly, he'll pray over me when I'm afraid before a sermon. And, and I've made it a habit to ask him for help. And it's all it's done is enrich our relationship, right? It's, it's, and I've, the only people you have to be careful of are narcissists and psychopaths with this material. Heard, heard that. Yeah. But most of these students are longing for a coach to say, I'm scared too. I don't know either. I, like, when I'm, like, I don't know my kid's world. I've never, I was not raised in the world they're raised in. So I shouldn't try to pretend that I'm, I'm an expert. But I'm with them. I'm in it with them. And... So for, yeah, being human for sure. That's a that's a huge gem right there. Hey, I don't understand the world that you're living in, but I'm here with you. Yeah, I like you. I really man, I really like you. I like being around you. And if I can be some relief for you, they're great. Yeah. So so I, I I preach this way. Like I was very mindful when I came to this church. I'd never been a lead pastor before, and I'd preached a lot, but I'd never preached every week before. So I basically learned how to preach in front of the people I was leading. That is the worst. Like for whatever idols and things you think you need, learning how to preach bad sermons in front of the people you're leading 
is so bad. So it, it occurred to me the only part, and, and I've gone through, and we, we haven't covered on this, but I've gone through quite a doubt journey in my own life, starting with chaplaincy, that was really plaguing for a while. So how is it that you're the lead pastor in doubting, and how do you steward that for people, and how do you, when are you putting it on them, and when are you helping them, and it's really hard. Um, but I figured out really early on, if I'm going to survive as a lead pastor, I can't get up at the pulpit as an expert. I can only get up as a curious researcher. So That's really good. even tonight, I and and I've now trained our preachers to do this. When we get up to preach, we don't we say, "Here's what I've been learning lately," and sometimes I learned it ten years ago. And I'll say, "Oh, for the," but I'll even say, I, "I won't say I learned this ten years ago." I'll say, "I've been on a journey for about ten years now, of really trying to understand the love of God in a deeper way." And here's where I've noticed I've gotten in the way. But if you can do that with your youth, and I'm guessing you guys probably do. Um, but if you just if, if you train your coaches that they're not experts, they're the authority, and those are different things. I am not an expert in my children's life, but I am the authority. Like I, because they're kids in my home, I can make them do things, but I don't have to know, and that frees your coaches up. Yeah the the one thing that I was thinking is they I think they to an extent know that they don't have to have all the answers. It's just that fact that. We have some people that are like, I have this opportunity and I need to take full advantage of it and I can't not have a bad day oh, because man. that might be, this might be the day he needs it or they, she needs they it. They need to help Parker build this bookcase. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. send them to, <laughs> yeah. So, so actually what I would say to that coach, I would do what we did to Parker. I would make the coach have a bad uh, small group. In, let's say they're doing small groups with your students. I would prescribe for the coach, you have to go in and do a half-baked job today. And then let's debrief, how did it go? Oh, it was terrible. Okay, good. That was a win. Because too much pressure. None of us, like, like another, another thing that I had to learn the hard way in chaplaincy, and this is a lesson. Actually, I'm, I'm relearning the lesson right now. I keep forgetting it and having to relearn it. Uh, I, I started out where when I'm anxious, I forget that God's present. Anxiety, it's hard to be anxious and experience God's presence at the same time. I then moved to thinking that I was taking God with me into the room. I show up and God's with me. So I'd say to myself, it's okay, God's with me. But the final frontier was, oh, wait a minute. Of course, God's already in the room. I'm actually just walking into what God's already doing. And it's not on my shoulders, right? Mm. That was the shift I made. It's like, oh, it's all on me. Whereas in chaplaincy, a skilled chaplain is simply perceiving where is God at work and how can I join? And so when I hear this pressure from these coaches, my gut is too much pressure. It can't be that way. God kind of set it up to where every encounter has to be a home run. And this is the one chance to share the gospel. It's too much pressure. If that's really the way God set it up, then God did a bad thing. What's actually true is God's spirit is invading all kinds of places (laughs) And if we can notice it and move into it and do our little part, and that's kind of connected to why we need to stop trying to change the world and just change the few hundred or few thousand, because um, God's changing the world. So, so I, I, I'd advise the coaches to screw up, um, to, to make a list of the, the things that they think they do badly. And then because playfulness and absurdity is a big deal, let's say that you have your coach. Okay, here's what I, here's what I do. I'd say, okay, coach. What does it look like when it goes really badly? And maybe they list 12 things. 
Okay, which three of those are you going to do next week? Let's choose three, and you're going to intentionally do three. You're going to interrupt a kid. Um, and, and again, you can't like mock a child. Like there's things, <laughs> you can't punch a child. Oh yeah, let's do that. But there are things you can do that no one gets hurt that helps the coach realize the sun came out the next day, the kids came back. Um, I, have, I have two more general questions for you. Yeah. So as a, as a newbie to this content, I'm sure this is heavily covered in the book. Um, I've heard you talk about managing leadership, anxiety, yours and theirs. So there comes a moment where you recognize it's not yours. What, is, what does that look like? Because I, I feel like you're still responsible for leading that person. When you realize it's not yours, it's theirs. How do you lead them in knowing that it's theirs? Like my, my question unedited was just, how do I tell someone it's theirs? You know, so what, is, what does that situation look like? The theirs in the material is more to do with a group than another individual. So the only time you can really tackle an individual is when you're in a close relationship with them. So the thesis of the book, which by the way, I think chapter one and the intro, you can just download from my website. So you can get started and the table of contents. So even the table of contents kind of shows you a flow. Um, where was I? Uh, so the thesis of the book is straight from a guy named Edwin Friedman. He says, you can only lead people who are moving toward you. So if someone's not moving toward you, you can't lead them. That's the theory. You can disagree with that, but that's his theory. And he's a marriage and family therapist who then got into leadership. And he's a Jewish rabbi. He's a fascinating dude, Edwin Friedman. So the only time I would ever go to an individual is if they're moving toward me. Or if the impact of their actions was so bad on the team um, yeah. that I, I took that chance. But like the people that you had a misunderstanding with, uh, it might have been that for a while there they weren't moving toward you. And your effort to chase them is actually your attempted solution that pushes them away even more. So the theory is that good leadership is just figuring out who's moving toward me and how do I appropriately get people to move toward me in a non-manipulative way? Like, what gifts has God given me that is unique to me that makes people want to follow me? And then the other thesis in the book is that leadership is knowing what to do. And that's an audacious statement because most of the time we don't know what to do. But the reason you know it is when you don't know what to do, whoever you look at in that moment, that's the leader. So if you're in a room and people don't know what to do and they look to you, so like if you're in a group meeting and someone loses their cool with someone else, people don't look to the person who lost their cool, they look to the leader. You can, you can watch a room and then if you don't want to be the leader, just stay silent and people will stop looking at you and start staring at somebody and that person will speak up. In fact, if you guys want to play with your staff in a really manipulative, cruel way, just start staring at everyone. Choose someone to stare at and watch them speak. It'll happen because most people don't have the capacity to cope with external pressure to do something. Unless you've been trained as a chaplain, then you can do it for six hours. But if you guys want to play a game, go back to your church, pick on somebody. This is terrible. I can't believe I'm saying this. And all four of you stare at that person. They'll just start saying something. And depending on who they are, they'll either say, what, what, what? They'll kind of feel it. Or they'll actually just 
Like if something happened and you all just go, that person will try to fix it. So the theirs is learning to pay attention to how groups operate together. Um, and you, and so in youth ministry, it's killer with small groups with kids. Who's the kid that always makes the joke? Correct. Uh, so who's the kid that always speaks up, like wants to please the leader by answering the question? These are all predictable, like boringly predictable. And so group theory and group anxiety is these are all the ways these kids are managing the anxiety in the room together. And it's your ability to pay attention to that as much as what they're saying that will deepen the group experience. So how do you say to the joking kid, hey, I've noticed that you avoid pain by always cracking the joke. And I like that you're the life of the party. It's really fun. But maybe next time, could you try two times when you think you're going to just to hold it? You can still be the, you can still crack joke. I'm not saying change, but just two, two out of 10 times. Right, just withhold that joke because some kids actually need to share. And, and can you help me? That would be the theirs part. I don't know if that helps. That's great because typically the kid who's great at cracking jokes and is the life of the party has the social skills to actually read the room that's and right. do those things. So if you could repurpose that skill right. to actually work for the group, that's, that's right. That's huge. Yeah, you're just taking a gift and a shadow side and bringing it all. Yeah. My my last question. You talk about phantom attacks. Yeah, yeah. I love that title of phantom attack. (laughs) Um, When when that happens, we we've covered in the in the podcast so far, or excuse me, you guys have covered in the podcast so far how to move through that and kind of see that. Okay, introduce me to the phantom choir. You know, introduce me to them, and we will work through this. And typically, it fizzles fizzes out. However, you're sitting across the table from possibly someone who you're leading. And so obviously that's some sort of anxiety that they're bringing to the table. Is there a way to help someone through um, that phantom attack process that's more than just saying they're probably lying, it's just them? Thank you for your time. That's good. Yeah, there's different, different attackers. So the most aggressive situation is where the people are actively sabotaging. And then you need an aggressive response, which is typically to call someone else in the mob. I've done that. Um, we're all like when I learned that a friend of mine was being co-opted into this mob, I just called my friend. And it, it's a pretty aggressive move. And I wasn't aggressive with my friend. It's just a bold move. And I said to my friend, hey, Paul, we'll call him Paul. Paul said that you have a problem with me. Um, and I'm not I don't know that you really do. But I just wanted you to know he's saying that because that hurts because we're friends. And wouldn't you just come to me? And this guy, let's call him Charles, Charles said, oh, you know, Paul, he's always like ranting and we just listen and we honestly, we don't know what to do. And what's happening is Paul is passionate about a problem and he's ranting to you guys. And when you smile and nod, he's co-opting, oh, they all agree with me. And he's crediting you with the same level of passion that he has and then bringing them up to me, yeah. Right. So when I go to one of the people in the mob and this poor guy's like, we just don't know what to do. And I had to say to him, well, I just want you to know he's using you against me. And you and I are good. It's okay. But I just thought you should know. And then go back to Paul and say, I called Charles. Just want you to know Charles is a friend of mine. So I'm going to keep doing this. If you Now, if you have an issue with me, here we go. But if you keep going to other people, I'm going to call him. 
Um, now, that's, uh, that would be the most aggressive on the spectrum. I love, I interviewed Nancy Ortberg in season one. I thought her answer was amazing, where she recognized, and I've had this too, where someone, like I've had a friend bring a phantom mob to me. I remember because it was a holiday and my pastor hat was off. And, and it was like Christmas or Thanksgiving or something. And there we are around the table and he brings the phantom mob. But he's a good friend of mine. He's not bringing it against me. In his case, he, that was his anxiety response. He doesn't know how to hold it. So somebody had chewed his ear and he can't hold it. He only knows how to pass it on to me. And so now, and so I had, and I've had this with some friends where someone will chew the ear of my friend. My friend will call me and say, Charles is upset. I'll call Charles and Charles will deny it. I'm not upset. And that's why it's a phantom. You've got nothing to hold on to. Like, wait, well, so I then had to go back to my friend and say, hey, um, as my friend, it, it, it's hard for me to hear third hand stuff. So could you, and I, I understand it's hard for you to hold it. So could you just, when you hear it, tell the person to talk to me and then not tell me. That would help me. And I think that would, because here's what's happening is when I chase it down, it's a, it's a cloud of steam. And I've done that with two friends of mine, and it and they love me, and they had my they they had good intent, but they just didn't know how they were trying to be helpful, and because they're trying to be helpful, I wanted to help them in being helpful. Does that make sense? Whereas this guy Paul, he was actively trying to get me fired. So let me close on something though, because one thing you guys can take back with you is you can Google differentiation, which I think we covered in with Jay Pathak. But we'll cover more. But a lot of what we're talking about is a skill known as differentiation. And uh, the guys that write about it are Murray Bowen, uh, B-O-W-E-N, and Ed Friedman. For more resources, you can visit managingleadershipanxiety.com and download a free chapter of my upcoming book. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss. 